Good morning once again. I'm going to be talking about it. This is a section that I've looked forward to in Hebrews chapter 3. And uh, I will confess to you that there are times where the Lord causes me to live Sunday's sermon before I teach it. <laughs> and that's been my week. This has been an interesting time and uh, I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be talking about, do you have the, the slide up there, Richard? You're trying? Okay. There we go. We're going to be talking about what it is to have a hard heart, but more than that, what it is to see God's remedy for a hard heart. We'll look at what it is, look at what it's not, and then we'll look at how to avoid it. Uh, So let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to gather, to... uh, just to be strengthened, Lord. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would uh, just be working in us. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see and hearts that understand what it is you have for us individually this morning, what it is you have for us as a church, as a body of believers. So we yield this time to you. We commit ourselves afresh to you. Pray you do the work, Lord, because without it, uh, we know that without your Holy Spirit, and it's just not going to happen. So we thank you, Lord, that your will is to come and to instruct. So we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in Hebrews chapter 3 uh, last week in this, and we'll probably wrap up the chapter this morning. Uh, I'm going to try. I've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to look at the Old Testament extensively at some principles there and, and pull some things out. But as we've been looking at this, in the first part of chapter 3, the ver- first excuse me, the first seven verses uh, were about Moses and about Jesus's superiority to Moses. We looked at how Moses was faithful in his house, if you remember, but the writer says, however, Jesus built the house. And so what's better to, (laughs) and then he talks about Moses was a servant in the house and Jesus is a son. And and again, ask the rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is, is, would you rather be friended to a servant or a son? And, and, and that's the relationship. That's the nature of the relationship that we have with him. And so we've looked at that. We looked at what it is to be partakers of the heavenly calling. That's how he starts the chapter. We looked at the word therefore because it's there and it's there for a purpose. And then here, as we get into the text this morning, we see that word again. And so, uh, interesting, the writer shifts now. He, he, what we've been looking at up until now is a, sort of an argument. I don't mean an argument like he wants to argue, but I mean a, a technical argument on the superiority of Jesus. And we'll get back to that whole line of doing things. But he shifts from an argument to an exhortation. And, 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 and he even exhorts to exhort in this passage. And and what an exhortation is, this is a strong encouragement. It's not yelling at somebody. It's not getting in their face. It's not any of that. I mean, there are times where we exhort and it's hard. The gift of exhortation is, uh, my daughter had the gift of exhortation and, and it, it would just blow me away. Uh, she had the ability to say hard things to people and have them walk away going, wow, that was wonderful. And I was like, how do you do That's just the Lord. It was just a spiritual gift that she had. And so he begins now to exhort the people. And this is, by the way, the second of six warnings in this book. He is not only exhorting, he's warning 
about the dangers, the absolute dangers that they faced in the first century of a hard heart. He goes back 3,500 years from, from where we are now. He goes back to the Old Testament when Israel came out of Egypt and he talks about the hardness of heart they had then. He warns about the hardness of heart that these people were risking by thinking about going back to Judaism. And we, by way of application, can get great value out of understanding what this thing called hard-heartedness is. And Christian, if you're a Christian, you're susceptible. Not only are you susceptible, there, there may likely have been times where you have fallen into hardness of heart. You may be, the Lord may put his finger on something in your life today that he says, you know, I want that. That's hardness of heart. That's something I want to deal with. And I encourage you as we go through apply this to you. What the writer's doing here, in a sense, he's doing a Bible study with the people that he's writing to. Yeah, it's the first century, and the Bible that they had was the Old Testament, and he is laying out the scripture before these guys irrefutably. They cannot argue with it because it's God's word. There have been times over the years where somebody wants to come up and take issue with me for something that I've taught or expounded on or whatever in the word of God, and I've essentially said, you know, I have to step aside in this argument because your argument's not with me. It's with him. Why? Because it's his word. It's his divinely inspired word. And if there's issue, then it's an issue with him. I'm, I'm a divine delivery boy, guys. I didn't write the paper. It's my job to throw it in your yard. And that's exactly what it is that we do here on Sunday mornings. So, uh, Interesting, as we look at the, the word heart here, the Greek word is cardio, and it's obvious that we understand where that word comes from and what it means to us, and it means a physical heart uh, in our language, a, a cardiogram or the, the heart, and it's talking about the physical heart, uh, the physiological heart of someone. That is never, in the New Testament, is nev- that word is never used for a physical heart. Not once. It's not talking about that thing that sits in your chest and pumps blood. It's talking about the inner being. It's talking about the, the who you are. It's talking about that person inside that, well, let me read something I came across. This, this really kind of nails it. Uh, it's important to understand the broad biblical meaning of the word heart. The Bible considers the heart to be the hub of human personality producing the things which we would ordinarily ascribe to the mind. For example, Scripture informs us that grief, desires, joy, understanding, uh, thoughts and reasoning, and most importantly, faith and belief are all products of the heart. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, that the heart is a repository for good and evil, and that what comes out of our mouth, good or bad, begins in the heart. And so when we're talking about the heart here, and we're talking about hardness of heart, we're talking about a hardening that goes on inside. Uh, To sum up, a hard heart symbolizes a firm resistance to God. I'll say it again. A hard heart symbolizes a firm resistance to God. Whatever God's doing, and if you're resisting it, and you, you, and you have to actively resist. Now, I'm not talking about struggling, okay? We all struggle. We all go through things where it's like the initial jolt of the thing kind of knocks us off our pins, and then we get back up, and we start to pray, and then the Lord moves, and we begin to enter in. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a resolve, 
And it's a resolve to blow off the things of God and to do my own thing. Not just that, but it's to, it's not just not believing. It's believing something that's false. We'll see that really clearly as we go through here. Uh, I'm going to read through verses 7 through 19 here in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, and then we'll go back and we'll take a look at it. Uh, and here, the writer, by the way, he's quoting Psalm 95. Again, it's a Bible study. He goes right to the Word of God to be able to make his points, and, and they're very clear points, and they're points which are born of God's Word. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not all those with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That's a lot. There's a lot there. We'll cover it as quickly as we can here. A couple of things I want to point out. Today, the, the writer uses the term today five times in verse, in chapters three and four. It, it's used here in verse seven, in verse 13, and in verse 15. What he's talking about is something that should, number one, elicit an immediate response, not something I'm going to put off until tomorrow. Uh, what he's talking about is also, you talk, you hear in our, in our culture, people talk about being present and, and, and operating in the present. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about, it's not about yesterday. It's not about tomorrow. It's about today. It's about right now. The Holy Spirit is moving. God is speaking. That's what he's saying. God speaks. And if you don't believe that God speaks, you really need to examine your theology. He speaks clearly. The question is, are we listening? The question is, are we receiving what he has? That's really where it's at. And so he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't strengthen your resolve to not listen to what he has to say. Don't take things into your own hands and do it your way. Because what's at the other end of that is acting on bad information. And when you act on bad information, it's going to be a wreck. It's not going to turn out well. And so he's exhorting us to, to understand, number one, that God does speak through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says here, and he says the Holy Spirit says, not said, or is going to say, he's saying it as though it's happening right this minute. The Bible and its application is timeless. 
And, and we do well to understand that in it being timeless in its application, it applies to me, it applies to you and, and I together today. That's why he is so hammered down on using that term. Now, the problem with the heart, I want to look at this and just kind of go through here. All the places where he talks in this passage, he talks about several aspects of, of that regard with regard to the problem of the human heart, the problem of the inner man, inner woman. In verse eight, he says, don't harden your hearts. Verse 10, they always go astray in their hearts. Verse 12, an evil heart of unbelief. Verse 13, a heart hardened through to the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15, again, do not harden your hearts. The heart of the problem, folks, is the problem of the heart, truly. I want you to understand something, too, about hard-heartedness. It's different than mean-heartedness. I think a lot of times, because, you know, we look at Pharaoh in the Bible, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh wasn't a believer. He wasn't a child of God. He was antagonistic and opposed and against God and God's purposes when Moses went to him and all. And and he was hardened in his heart. He was firm in his resolve against God. He was a mean-hearted guy. But this is a this letter, this exhortation is to believers. It is to you and I. It is to the church. It is to Christians. It in context to Hebrew Christians who were struggling, thinking about walking away, thinking about this is too hard. I, I maybe I'll just go back to Judaism and that'll be good enough. And he's saying that's not an option. But it's not about mean heartedness. I know some really, really nice people that have hard hearts. And so understand that you could be a nice person. Don't let that be a veil for a hard heart. So when in chapter three, verse seven, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. In the first century in Judaism, this was the common call to worship. In other words, when on Saturday morning, on Sabbath, Shabbat, when the people were going to assemble and gather together and go worship at uh, the temple or go to the synagogue, the priest would be out there and he would be essentially advertising and saying, we're going to gather. And what he would be saying is today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. as they did in the rebellion. Today, if you'll hear his voice. Harden not your hearts. That would be the proclamation coming from the priest every Shabbat, every Sabbath. Now, so when when the writer puts this down, he's intentionally reaching these guys where they were. He's saying, look, I know you know this saying. I know you understand that this is a call to worship. This is a call to assemble. This is a call to come and to gather together together. Uh, in Judaism, it was the common saying. It was what was said every time. In 370, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me and they saw my works for 40 years. He says, therefore, what's it Therefore, Remember, we've talked about that. So who is he talking to here? Well, in verse 1, part of the therefores, he's talking to partakers of the heavenly calling. 
He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the people he was writing to then. And by fact, uh, by virtue of the fact that God's word is inspired and it's uh, timeless, as I mentioned, he's talking to us. So the thing that's important here is he says, therefore, God speaks. The Holy Spirit says today, if you'll hear his voice. Now, God has, what he's talking about too, he says, you know, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. We're going to go back into Exodus. We're going to look at the rebellion. And we're going to go into Leviticus or into the book of Numbers and look at the rebellion a little bit more. We're, we've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of scripture to cover this morning. Uh, but it's interesting, I was talking to my wife and I said, you know, very often when I'm going through and I'm teaching a passage, I have a lot of commentary that as I wait on the Lord, I just am directed and all, and, and I write things, make notes, and I give commentary on it. And that's true. I mean, I'm, I intend to do that, but it's interesting. There are just certain passages where God's word gives its own commentary. And so we're going to go back. We're going to look at this. What does it mean? Don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion. And we're going to see what God's word has to say about that. There's some great stuff in here, and it really becomes clear when we understand that, how it applies to this. So the first is God had made his intentions clear uh, to Israel. He had heard the cries of the of Israel and when they were in Egypt. They spent that 400 years in Egypt, and it says that a Pharaoh was raised up that knew not Joseph. He put the between two and three million people into bondage. And they were building, he had them on his building project. The Egyptians were builders, they were master builders, and they used slave labor. And so rather than have the Israelites get stronger, they oppressed them, and they put them into slavery. And so, and it was very cruel slavery, not going to go into all that, but the, the children of Israel were crying out in their oppression. So in Exodus chapter 6, uh, we read this in verse 5. He says, I've heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Interesting. This is before the covenant of law. Oh, I'm not going to arrive a trail. I, I want to stay with this. <laughs> Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Now, I, I, this is, who's doing the work here? God. And he's saying, I've heard your cries and I am about to move and I am going to do all of this stuff. I, 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 and all you have to do is come along with the program. All you have to do is cooperate with what I'm doing. Those are my intentions. And not only that, like the game shows, but wait, there's more. He says, then you shall know in verse seven, that I'm the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians, Egypt in, in the Old Testament is very symbolic. It's a type for the world. And, and so when he's talking about this, I'll tell you what, Exodus 6, 6 through 8 is the gospel. It truly is. I wrote a term paper in college called The Gospel in Exodus. And that, this is the passage that I used to write it because it is exactly what God does, but in a perfect sense, not in a partial sense. It's exactly what God does through Jesus and the cross. 
and through the resurrection and through the promises of God that we inherit, the inheritance we have. Uh, again, we could, I could just take off and go on that for the rest of this study and we wouldn't get any further, but this is a beautiful passage because God is clearly announcing his intentions. He says, then you'll know that I'm the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, verse 8, and I will bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll give it to you as a heritage or an inheritance. I am the Lord. In other words, that seals it. This will happen. That's my guarantee. That's my pledge. I have sworn, and that's how it is. So he tells Moses, tell Israel that, and Moses did. So we see here that Israel began well. Yeah, they ended poorly, and that's the writer's point here in Hebrews. I don't want you to end poorly. I don't want you going back to Judaism. I don't want you walking away from Christ because the the cost is high. And, and in order to avoid that, you have to avoid having a hard heart. In order to avoid having a hard heart, you have to actually understand that God speaks. In order to understand that God speaks, you've got to actually listen. And not only do you, is it required to listen, but it's to trust and obey. That's the point. So they were spared from Pharaoh. And, and you guys, if you've been around the church long or you've read your Bible much, you, you know the story. Uh, they were spared from Pharaoh. The, uh, it, Moses did the 10 plagues and, and the 10th was the plague of death. They were spared from death and, and delivered from the bondage that they were in. And, and not only that, but God loaded them up. He gave them the plunder. They walked out of Egypt with a load of gold and silver livestock, herds, and animals, the whole day. I mean, they took the plunder. God gave it to them. And so not only did he just minimally get them off, but he blessed them through it. He took them up to the edge of the Red Sea. We'll look at that in a minute. And then he brought them through the sea. He gave them fire by night to illuminate the way. He gave them a cloud of smoke by day to shade them from the desert sun. That was the way he manifested his presence. He gave them spiritual food miraculously every day, twice on Friday. He gave them spiritual water from a rock that literally followed them around. He took care of every detail. In Exodus 14, we see that Israel gets hemmed in. Uh, As they had been delivered from Egypt, Pharaoh had let them go and then he went, huh, I don't think I like what I did. I think I'll chase him down and we'll, we'll get him. So the, the Egyptian army with 600 chariots goes out and they, they corner Israel at the Red Sea, uh, at the, yeah, at the Red Sea. And, and, and Israel starts to do what they do best to complain to Moses. And, and because they're, they're frightened, they're worried that now they're, they're cornered. And it says in Exodus 14, 11, that they, the children of Israel, said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? And so they actually accused Moses of taking him out to die. Remember, a hard heart is born of not just unbelief, but it's also born of believing a lie. And that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, further on in Exodus 14, uh, in chapter in chapter 14, in verses 30 and 31, we see that God delivers Israel. He takes control of things. He puts his cloud between the Egyptian army and the uh, the, the Israelites, uh, and and he blocks the way 
throughout the night. And then he tells Moses, take your rod, lift it up. The sea depart, the sea parts, and Israel goes through on dry ground. Now the Egyptian army follows them. They chase them in. And then what does the Lord do? He instructs Moses, raise your staff again. And the sea closes, by the way, over the top of all the Egyptian army. And so in verse 30 of the same chapter, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Interesting. Well, they were believers. They believed God. Struggles are over, right? Not so fast. Exodus chapter 15, they were so stunned at this miraculous victory that God had performed in their midst that they began to worship. It says that the people and Moses began to sing a song to the Lord. It's called the Song of Moses. Read Exodus 15 if you'd like on your own. It's a beautiful, beautiful, worshipful song. In verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed victoriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. He's my song. He has become my salvation. He's my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And it goes on. It's just a sampling of this song of Moses here that Israel, again, they start well. They're absolutely blown away by what, to use, I don't think anybody told Moses, hey man, I'm blown away. But they're blown away by what God's doing. They're absolutely stunned that he parts the waters and they walk through and their enemies are drowned behind them. They think it's great. They say, wow, we can really trust this God guy, this Yahweh guy. And they begin to worship. And, and they're sincere in their worship. But their belief, their understanding was at this point shallow. Uh, we'll see that as we go. go. Going forward to Exodus chapter 16. You see the people, they get out into the desert and um, they get hungry. They run out of food. They, they couldn't. Yeah, there's no refrigerators back then. And so they could only take a little bit of food with them. And the food that they have, they're consuming. Like I said, two to three million people out here in the desert wandering around. And it is desert there. I mentioned that before. This is not just like kind of semi-arid hot days. No, it's, it's the kind of place where you die if you don't have protection from the sun. If you don't have water and you don't have food. So it says in in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, it says, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness because they were running out of food. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Here's the lie. Catch it. When we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. That is hogwash. That's not what happened in Egypt. They were starving. They were getting minimal provisions, doing maximum work. And if they were out of line, there was a guy there with a whip or a sword that took care of business. They've got this glossed over version. Again, they're not just not believing that God's going to provide food for them. They're disbelieving. They're they're strengthening their resolve to not believe and they're making up a story and then believing that in its place. That's something, folks, 
We do that. I'll get to that in a few. He says, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's what Israel was doing with Moses. Uh, Exodus chapter 17. Not only were they hungry, they got thirsty. And verse 1 says, now, I want you to understand, Exodus 14, they go through the Red Sea, or the, yeah, the Red Sea, and, and, and they see this marvelous work of God, and they rejoice, they worship, man, they're, man, we are, we believe, we, we're with you. And the first thing that happens is they're challenged. God doesn't tell them ahead of time. That he's going to provide, you think he's going to, do you really think, and essentially they're going to God there, and God tells them, we'll get to that, where he says, I'm tired of your complaining against me. They're not complaining directly against him, they're complaining against Moses. But Moses was God's man. And in complaining against him, they're complaining against God. They're not seeing the big picture. They're not seeing that God is going to take care of them. He is going to provide, he told them he would. He, in in chapter six that we read, he gave them the whole program. He said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to take you. You won't have, you won't be in bondage anymore. I'm going to bless you. And then I'm going to take you into this beautiful, wonderful, fabulous land that flows with milk and honey. And I'm going to give it to you. It's a gift. Take it. Just take it. And they're doing this. And they're deciding to take things into their own understanding. Their hearts are getting harder. That's the writer's point. That's what's happening here. So it says that they, then all of the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord. This is Exodus 17. Uh, and camped it in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses, said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Oh, this is terrible, Moses. We just, how come you've done this? How come you're, you're, you're going to cause us to dehydrate and just die in this wilderness? They've taken the truth of God and perverted it for a lie. And they have faith. They believe, but they're believing the wrong thing. They're not applying the thing that they know about God that he had already delivered them. They're not taking that. They're not taking his past faithfulness. Listen, this is, this is the core. We'll get to it as we finish up later on. But, but they're not taking his past faithfulness and using it on a, as a down payment on his future faithfulness in order to live well now. Uh, the name of this study is a remedy for a hard heart. That is what it is. You take God's past, past faithfulness. Has he been faithful? You use it as a down payment on his future faithfulness so that you live well now. And that's the point. That's what they're not doing. That's what they are consistent. Now, I was talking to my wife uh, that if I if I make a mistake, it's one of her cute words. Yeah, you, you're supposed to probably have cute words. One of her cute, cute words is, oh, you, you boofed. And if I make a mistake or I misspeak or I do something wrong, she'll say, oh, you boofed, honey. And, and I'll say, yeah, I boofed. Okay, there's a difference. Here's the point. There's a difference between a boof 
<laughs> Oops. <laughs> Blew that. And a pattern of behavior. What we're seeing emerging here in the hearts and minds, the hearts and minds of the people of Israel is a pattern of behavior of unbelief. It's a pattern in behavior of not only failure to trust, but a failure to obey. God said, go, I will take care of the details. I'm going to do all this. That he didn't give them the detail, the one detail at a time, that he didn't tell them ahead of time how it was going to come out was what they're stumbling by. They could not figure out that he, how he was going to take care of them, so they assumed that he wasn't. It happens all the time. I had some circumstances hit me this week, and I was like, God, I have no idea how you're going to work this out. I have no idea. And like I said at the beginning, sometimes he makes me live through the, the message for Sunday. And, and it's like, and yet as I went through the week, I just, he just filled me with a settled peace. It's like, I don't know how he's going to, but I know he will. And not only will he work it out, it'll be good. I don't know how he does that, but that's what he does. So often in our lives, we get faced, we get hit with circumstances, and they, they knock us, they hit us hard, and we say, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? How are we going to, we'll run out of money, we'll do this, we'll do that, and we start going all over and just kind of, and it's like, the Lord just says, why don't you just take my advice? I love Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew word for be still means relax and let go. And, and I love the, the picture of that. I, I remember we had a pool at one time with a diving board. And, and I would get up and I would stand backwards on the diving board. And I would just put my arms out and I would relax and let go. And oh, that water felt so good when I fell into it. <laughs> but it was just like, and that was, when I read that, when I studied that in Psalm 46, I thought, that's kind of like that diving board. It's like kind of like falling into, the, it's relax and let go. And know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I want my name to be known. And how is his name going to be known? Through people who trust that he's doing what he's doing. And, and, and do an end run on trying to figure it all out. He says, my ways aren't your ways. They're not your thoughts. They're beyond your finding out. So stop trying and just relax and understand that I've got it. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. But please... Understand, if there's anything you can take away from this message this morning, know that he's got it. He truly has it. Your life is in his hands. And he's revealed his intentions towards you already. He's loving, merciful, compassionate, gracious, kind, long-suffering, patient. Know that about our Lord. Apply that to the circumstances that you're in Use his past faithfulness as a down payment on the fact that he's going to work it out and then rest now. That's the God that we serve. That's the power of the gospel. That's the work he wants to do in us. And when he does that individually and then we come together, we celebrate that. Yeah, we bear one another's burdens and we weep with those who weep. And and yeah, we go through things. I'm not saying that at all. But what he ends up with is a community of people who trust and that know that their lives are set apart for his purposes. 
and we're embracing the program he has for us rather than resisting it, kicking and screaming, Lord, put cotton in your ears, I ain't coming by myself, you know, all, no. He ends up with the people who are willing to cooperate with the fact that he speaks by his Holy Spirit and a people that are not willing to rebel like they did back in Exodus, back in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And they said, and said, they always go astray in their heart. Remember, I talked about, he's talking about a pattern, not a boof here. They always go astray in their heart. Their pattern is they're always going astray. And they have not known my ways. They have replaced my ways with their assumption of what my ways are. And it's a false assumption. And therefore, they're acting on bad information. And therefore, it's a train wreck. So, verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they will not, they shall not enter my rest. What is his rest? For them, it was Canaan. For us, the fruit of God's spirit is love. Manifesting his joy. Manifesting his peace. Patience. Kindness. Gentleness. Faithfulness. And so on as we're engaged with understanding the truth of God through the truth of his word brought by the truth of his spirit, our lives become more at ease. Our lives become unplugged from being thrown around by our circumstances and become engaged in being at rest, at rest as a result of trusting him as a result of obeying him. Do you see why the writer is so concerned about bringing this illustration out for these people back then and for us people now? This is a great, it's not just a recipe, guys. This is the God we serve. Numbers chapter 13. uh, Israel made an 11-day journey to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And... That was 11 days out of Egypt. It was a short, it was a backpack trip. Well, for 3 million people, but it was still, it was a short trip, considering. And they get out there and they get right up to the edge of Canaan. That's the land of promise. That's the land that God had promised all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then they spent 400 years in Egypt and now God's going to fulfill that promise. They send spies into the land, 12 spies and they went in to spy out. It wasn't like, you know, they walked around with, you know, dark overcoats and all that. But they go in. Yeah, this is the Jewish CIA. Uh, but they go in to spy out the land. They go, in, out, they go in to check it out because they know that there are enemies in the land. They know that there are people that occupy Canaan. And they spend 40 days in the land checking it out. And they come back. And Joshua and Caleb, Moses' right-hand guys, right and left-hand guys, actually. <laughs> but uh, Moses' guys, they come back and say, we could do it, man. We could take it. How come? Because God said we can. The other guys, not so much. <sighs> Verse 30 of Numbers 13 says this, and Caleb quieted the people. They, this is when they're having this discussion. Right? We can take it. The other ten go, <laughs> no way, man, we can't do it. Uh, it says that, that Caleb quieted the people and, and before Moses and said, let's go up at once and take possession. Yeah, man, let's go. You know, he's like a cheerleader up there. For we're able, well able to overcome it. 
Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. There's lie number one. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we've gone uh, as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. There's lie number two. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There's lie number three. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak. Uh, Anak, they're from, look in Genesis, you see that. Uh, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Line number four. There is no aspect of saying, God said we can do this, so we're going to do it. And so they refused. They got right up to the border and turned 11 days into 40 years. Why? Hardness of heart. They didn't want to go with God's program and they made up and believed a lie and put it in its place. Numbers 14 uh, says this, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. Wow, there's there's a new one. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, heard it before. Or if only we had died in this wilderness, we don't even have to go back to Egypt, we'll just die here because if we go in there, we're going to die and they're big and we're like grasshoppers and yeah, on and on and on. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? This is the original victim mentality. See that a lot around our culture these days. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. What is the writer saying to the people in Hebrews? Don't go back. Don't go back. To go back to Judaism is spiritual suicide is what he's telling them. Because there is only one way. Jesus didn't say, I'm a way and a truth and a life. He said, I'm the way. And these people knew that, but they were so discouraged, so disheartened and and picked on, being persecuted now, being abandoned by their families, being shut out by their culture, not being excommunicated by the Jews. Their lives were hard, and there is no mistake they were hard, but the writer's saying, look, don't do what they did back then. And don't start wanting to go back because this is hard. There are great things ahead. That's part of what we need to understand. That we don't see it now doesn't mean that God isn't in the blessing business. He lives to bless us. He loves to bless his kids. And often we don't see the blessing because we get concerned with the obstacles. Don't do it, folks. Because if you believe the obstacles, it leads to hardness of heart. And you can miss the blessing. He wants to bless. You can remove yourself from his ability to bless because he's not going to violate your will. We'll get to that in a minute. The point is, avail yourself of what he wants to do in your heart, in your life, in your circumstances. So after this, uh, in, in Numbers 14, Moses and Aaron, they essentially, they go down. They're on their faces. And the people want to stone them. Actually, they pick up rocks to stone them. And as soon as they pick up the rocks, it says, the glory of the Lord appeared in the camp. And it's like, 
you know, I always wonder, I, I picture the scene here, I think, did, like, the rocks go behind the backs? You know, <laughs> they're going to stone these guys. They're going to raise up a new leader. They're taking things totally into their own hands, and then God shows up, and they're like, oh. So God is going to judge them. He's actually going to destroy Israel. He says, Moses, I'm, going to, I'm just going to form a new people. I'll give them to you. And these guys, I'm going, to, I'm going to destroy, I'm just going to get rid of the whole works. I am tired of this. I've had it. I'm done. And, and he's going to do it. And Moses and his brother Aaron hit the ground. They get on their faces before God and they beg God not to destroy Israel. And God relents. There's a whole thing about the, the will of God and all of that. I'm not going to go into, suffice it to say, God knew what was going to happen ahead of time. But he allowed them to get to that point. And Moses and Aaron, they, they hit the, their, the ground. They're, they're interceding now for the people. After all of this, these people are wanting to kill them in one moment. And Moses is begging God not to kill them the next. Fascinating. He says, how long will I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me in Numbers 14. He takes it personally. Sort of like the Apostle Paul when he was knocked off the horse on the road to Damascus and he heard the voice, Jesus, and this is Jesus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting these people, but God takes it personally. Why are you persecuting me? And that's what he's saying here, saying, why are you complaining against me? He says, I've heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. In verse 27, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you the carcasses of you who have, I love that word. I just love that word. For some reason, I kind of giggle. Every, carcasses. He says, your carcass is going to fall. <laughs> he says, the carcasses of those who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Nobody goes in. You want to stay out. You want to keep griping, complaining. You want to keep making up a story and then believing it instead of believing me and my revealed purposes for your life. Go ahead. You're not going to enter my rest. You're not going to go in and, and inherit the blessing. You're not going to go into the land. And he penalized them 40 years. He gave them one year for every day that they were in the land. He says, everybody except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you'll by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. Chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Make a little more sense now? It does to me. I, I see this is very strong language. He is warning again. Remember that a hard heart symbolizes a firm resistance to God and to what God's doing. It's not a passive resistance. It's not a misunderstanding. We go through those things. that We do. You know, somebody that many times people say, what do you think God's will is for my life, Pastor John? It's like, you know what? When I figure out what his will is for my life, maybe we'll talk about yours. And yes, I, I have an, a general understanding. It doesn't mean that. But, but you know, it's not in the contract, folks, that he tell us what he's going to do ahead of time. That's why he calls us to trust. And, and, and where he does his best work is when we are facing impossible circumstances 
And we have to trust him. And he comes through. He, that he is in the business of speaking to us. And he's, uh, you know, there's a reason on Sunday mornings when I pray, I pray, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us those spiritual ears that we can knock out all the noise, get rid of the lies that we tell ourselves and hear your voice because you come with a clarity and a simplicity that is beyond anything we could experience short of the working of your Holy Spirit within. So what is an evil heart of unbelief? Yeah, it's the failure to hear him who, as he speaks uh, and to trust what he's saying Uh, But you know what, folks, what it begins with? It begins with doubt. Here's the point. The people in Israel, they're up against the Red Sea. They begin to doubt that God's going to come through. And and, and, and like like a, a, a snowball rolling downhill, it just begins to get bigger as it goes and, and gains more momentum. And pretty soon that doubt turns into a lie. It, it, pretty soon that doubt turns into there's no way we're going to get out of this. We might as well just all, just, let's just cash it in. And, and, and those are the things, they're real. I cannot count how many times I've had circumstances that looked like that in my life. And he calls us to places of deeper trust. What we call that is growth. We're all in process that you're struggling with something and you come to don't and, and please don't take this as you, I want to know if you, we're to bear one another's burdens. If you're struggling with something, let's talk about it. But the point is here, what he's bringing out here is, is that, that he brings us to these places where our life, I remember when my daughter spent a year in the hospital, very near death, frequently. And I, I wrote a, a prayer thing every night, sent it out. It was going all over the world and, and, I was blessed by knowing so many were praying for her, for Jessica, years before she went to the Lord, before she went home to heaven. But I, I wrote one time, and I mean this, were it not for the lessons that can only be learned when one's life is pressed in on every side, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. But he's faithful. He works so much good through that time in her heart, in my heart, in the hearts of others. Yeah, that's what he does. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it the way he does it. But I'm not him. And so we come to these places, and we come to these junctures where he says, "Are you going to trust me on this? Fill in the blank. Are you going to trust me for X or with such and so? Are you going to trust me?" Or are you going to take things into your own hands? You're going, to, you're going to act on, you're going to come up with bad information, assume things about me or assume things about the circumstances that aren't true and believe that? That's the choice before us, folks. That's the remedy for a hard heart. Trust and obey. So yeah, it's a failure to hear him who speaks, but more than that, it's a willful assumption that he will not come through. It's a willful assumption that God's not going to come through. This, we're all just, you know, that, remember the Eeyore thing? What was it on uh, Winnie the Pooh? The, well, I can't remember his name. Oh, we're all going to die. 
Yeah, you know, and maybe you know an Eeyore, but the point is, is that there's an attitude that can overtake us that's like, you know, this is just never going to work out. We might as well just, just pack our bags and go. It's just never going to. But you know what? That leads to a hardened heart when it comes to the things of God. Israel wanted to get another leader and go backwards. The people in the first century who had come to Christ 30 years before were thinking real seriously about getting another leader, going backwards. They weren't really thrilled about what was happening as children of Christ, of children of God. So as we look at this, unbelief is not the inability to understand. Here's a point but unwillingness to trust. And there's a difference. It's the will. It's not the intellect. It's not the emotions that are involved. Uh, Yeah, do things stress me out? Yeah, they do sometimes. But I, I know that beyond that, my will has to come into play. It's not about my intellect. It's not about my emotions. It's about the heart. And it's about the inability, the unwillingness to trust him. And that's what we see over and over again in Israel. And I just, you know what, in that stuff in, in, in Egypt, in Exodus, and then in Numbers, I just sampled a few. There are scads of places where Israel got their back up, and rather than trust, they freaked out and just complained and whined and, and got all crazy on Moses. I mean, there's a bunch of places there. And, and what the writer's saying is, don't, take, the, take the lesson. Don't do that. Verse 13, he says, but exhort one another daily while it's called today. Lest there be in any of you a hardened heart through the deceitfulness of sin. When he says today, there's an urgency to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's in the present tense. It's a present continual tense, actually. He's talking about today. It's like saying now, no now, no now. No, now, it's, it's a continual, he is continually wanting to speak to us. So today, if you hear his voice, it's, it's an urgent appeal to the people. He doesn't prompt us to get right with God tomorrow. He doesn't want us to trust in him yesterday. The Holy Spirit moves on us to act today. When he talks about the deceitfulness of sin, it's what we're talking about. The deceitfulness of sin, unbelief is the sin that he's talking about. He's not talking about the sin of immorality or the sin of, you know, acting unjustly. He's not talking about anything. He's talking about the sin of unbelief. Why is it deceitful? Because when we don't believe God, we don't stop believing. We simply start believing a lie. And that's the pattern. It's not about trying to be a better Christian. That's something that makes me kind of cuckoo inside when I hear that. And I understand what people mean. And I'm not picking on anybody. I don't have anybody in mind. But when I hear somebody say, I'm trying to be a good Christian. It's like, well, I'm trying to be a rock. Um, But I probably am not going to turn into a rock anytime soon. The point is, it's not about that. It's about being a forgiven follower of Christ that wants to hear his voice. Because if you're trying, it's an admission that you're not there. And by the grace of God, we're there. It's what do we do with it now that we're here? What do we do with him? Do we listen 
Do we have bad information? Or do we have good information that's solid, that's based in his word, by his Holy Spirit? We have a more sure word of prophecy, the Bible tells us. We have an awesome, inspired word. We have a Holy Spirit that dwells within the heart of each one, revealing the things of God, the character, the nature of God. And if you understand the character and nature of God, most of the lies are done before they even get started. Because you know that God would not take you out there to kill you in the wilderness, even though it feels like it. Verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 14. For we become partakers of Christ if we hold beginning, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Partakers of Christ. It's interesting. What he's talking about there, it's the whole picture. If you're a partaker of Christ, you're a partaker of, of his obedience, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his victory, his plan, his power, his work, his glory, and his destiny. That's a list. But that's what it means. It's all-encompassing. Saying partakers of Christ says it all. Are you a partaker of Christ? Praise God if you are. It's about trust and obey. Verse 15, well, it is said today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We often say our hearts become hard because of what others or circumstances do to us. I'm telling you folks, that's not it. The fact is we harden our own hearts in response to what happens to us. So what's he saying here? What he's essentially saying is take responsibility for your stuff. Take responsibility for your, for the circumstances that you're in. Understand that it's not up to you to try to solve them. To and yeah, we have our part and we you know we work through them and all, but it is up to us to whether or not we choose to trust. It's not somebody else's fault. Israel had a victim mentality. They decided that no, this is not our fault. This is God's fault. No, it's not God's fault. That's errant thinking. Understand that he calls us to personal responsibility and then act on that in a way that's consistent with walking forward with him instead of walking backward. Verse 16, for who having heard rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Israel began well and they ended poorly. That is not God's will for us. It wasn't his will for them. It's not his will for us. Verse 17. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses, <laughs> King James, carcasses, there's that word again, fell in the wilderness? Interesting. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? In, in, in Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4, the, the term and the concept of his rest is used 11 times. Next week, as we get into chapter 4, we'll take a look at that and we'll look at in depth at what his rest is. Um, but here, the key to entering rest is revealed. Trust. Believe. Believe that he's got this, whatever it is. And then trust him as you go through it. So we see that they couldn't enter in because of unbelief. So the question then is, is uh, go to the title slide, please. Is what's the remedy for a hard heart? As I mentioned, trust God's past faithfulness 
as a down payment on his future faithfulness with whatever you're dealing with now, that he is going to walk through it with you. That he has revealed his intentions ahead of time. You may not have specifics on that thing you're walking through, but he is good. And he is going to walk through it with you. And he is going to bring about an ending to that that is, that is good and right. And sovereign, yes. But he will walk through it. He never says he's going to keep us from trials. He says, I'll walk through, you, through them with you on them. The reason why I have a pile of rocks on the slide, this is the, I guess, the last point I want to make here before we wrap up. In Joshua chapter 4, after the 40 years, Israel wandered around the desert for 40 years. They went through all kinds of crazy stuff out there. And after that 40 years, when God brings them into the land under Joshua, Moses is dead, and, and Joshua is the commander now, and, and, and as God had promised, he and Caleb were the only ones that were over 20 that entered in. During that 40 years, the kids had grown up, and so they still have, there's still a couple million people. And they go in, cross the Jordan River, and God says something really interesting. He says, I want you, Joshua, I want you to appoint a man from each of the 12 tribes. And, and as Israel's finishing crossing this river, I want you to have each man go out into the middle of that river, and I want them to grab a big rock. I'm paraphrasing, that's what it says. And I want them to pack those rocks off, and then I want them to put them in a pile, and I want to use that as a memorial to what? To my faithfulness. In Joshua chapter 4, we'll finish with this. He says, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? And you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It's a pile of rocks. But the meaning behind it is so powerful and so significant. He didn't say, build me a shrine. He didn't say, build a temple. He said, I want to make a memorial. I want you guys to remember as you go forward, look at my past faithfulness, got you through this 40 years in the wilderness. Now you passed over the the Jordan River on dry ground, just like he did with the Red Sea. And when everybody asks in generations to come, what do these rocks mean? What it means is you use my past faithfulness as a down payment on my future faithfulness so that you do well today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Ah, Lord, I just love these passages, the richness in the Old Testament and the instruction for us. I just uh, thank you, Lord. uh,